Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, I'm Anton Enis, and welcome to our session on this beautiful, beautiful day in Adelaide. It's um, wonderful you're going to hear this a lot this week, but it is truly wonderful and energizing to see so many wonderful, smiling human faces looking back at us. Amazing. Thank you so much. Adelaide. Just so much better than an image on Zoom, I can tell you. Yes. Before yes. we start, let's just pause for one second just to acknowledge the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting. We acknowledge the elders of that community, past, present, and emerging. A couple of housekeeping things. If you want to tweet live, we have a hashtag, ADLWW. Please do that, and please keep your phone on silent while you're doing that. Um, we all know to be uh, sensible about our physical distancing. As you can see, this is a very, very popular session. We need to take extra care. So if you're sitting near anyone, if you're not on a chair particularly, don't get too close to the person near you. It's not just an announcement. I think that is a real, real health concern. We don't want to get into trouble with the authorities for breaking any rules. We have this wonderful privilege to sit in a park shoulder to shoulder and, and talk about books. So let's not push that too far. So please, please do cooperate with that. We need to just stay within the rules in order to keep going. So thank you very much for now and later when we do some signing at the, the bookshop over there. Just while we're on that subject, there are books for sale at the pop-up uh, store over there. So if you love today's session and if you love Boy Swallow's Universe, I'm sure you're gonna be wanting to get over there and get your book. <laughs> And Trent will be available to sign. He's not doing any hugs today, but we will be doing some signing. So, Trent, what does it feel like to be back in front of a live audience and with physical distancing? Oh, uh, it's a, well, you know, the last, it's f uh, firstly, thanks for everything you've done for Australian journalism, sir. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm honored that you're doing this, Anton. Thank, oh, thank you. you. Um, and again, thank you, Adelaide, for coming out. You could be doing a million things in this beautiful city and you're here to uh, hear me talk about books, so it's a true honour. Thank you so much. Amazing. Um, uh, but let me tell you, um, Anton, seriously, it's so great to see people in the flesh. And the last time I saw this many people in the flesh, and, and, and it's an indication to you that I want to tell this story that, uh, about how hard social distancing is for me. Um, it was... A crowd of people this big at the Sydney Writers Festival, and uh, and I was with my friend Matt Condon, the novelist, great Queensland novelist, and he was asking me questions, and then I was talking really deep, deep stuff about Boy Swallow's universe, and you know my 1980s and stuff, and then uh, a fire alarm, a fire alarm happened, <laughs> and the whole building had to evacuate, but everyone came back. We waited like 20 minutes, and they all came back, and I was so relieved and chuffed by this that that at the end, I walked out of that, that room and I saw this massive line and it was the line going to, um, they pointed, they go, oh, that's the signing table. I'm like, oh, that's, that's my line. They're all those people, they're for me. <laughs> and uh, I just started randomly hugging people. <laughs> and this line went forever, right? And uh, I must have hugged like 10 of the sweetest sort of mid-50s, extraordinarily beautiful, book-loving women. And I'm just going... You came back! You came back! And I'm hugging him really tight. It's like, you don't know what it meant to me. And, uh, and then my mate, Matt Condon, taps me on the shoulder and goes, Ah, Trent, that's the line to the ladies' toilets. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, Anton, it's, um, it's good to be here in the flesh. And they say no hugging, but uh, I don't know. I don't, forgive me. Okay, so we all so, learned a lesson from that. You know, just stay away from the women's toilet line today, Trent. <laughs> yes. We'll stick to virtual hugging. Well, we all know Boy Swallows Universe. It's, it's a rare thing in that it became instantly beloved among Australian readers. It's, the critics loved it. The word of mouth was incredible. The panels of judges appreciated it. Uh, and we understand that there's a TV adaptation in the, in the pipeline as well, so we're going to get a second version <laughs> of that. But with all of that success, I mean, it's like the wildest success that <laughs> any writer could possibly imagine. Was there any 
pressure in terms of sitting down and then thinking about what you're going to do next and with all of that success? Oh, man, great question. I mean, especially for a guy like me who overthinks everything, Anton. Like, it's like that, that thing that happened with Boy Swallows Universe was so um, unnerving and, uh, and at once um, invigorating and empowering. And, uh, and I had to come to a point where I only took the empowering stuff. And I had to decide, like, what are you going to do, man? This is your dream. And uh, what, why are you spending every night analysing it? And you, you wanted this so bad. And, and, you know, that book's so deep to me, mate, because, like, it's my heart and soul. Like, it's an absolute soul cough put into 430 pages. And so it's sort of like... You know, I, I just needed to tell the world about these people in my life that on paper everyone thought were rogues and sort of kind of bad people or whatever, and I just needed to tell the world why I love them. And, uh, and I was so terrified about the reaction to that and um, about what people were going to make of that. And then all these people, mate, they kept on coming up to me and going, thank you because that's my mum. And thank you, that's my dad. And, and those brothers of yours, they're exactly like my brothers or my cousins or my friend out on the fringes of Adelaide or, you know, and, uh, and so then I went, well, damn, that's really empowering and that feels really good. And, uh, and so, so just get over yourself and, you know, um, oh, man, can I tell a quick story? Like, that's, so, that's why I, we're here. <laughs> I don't think I can. <laughs> Let me tell you about the pressure um, and how Adelaide changed it. Like, it was, it's phenomenal that I'm here in this beautiful city. Um, I, I was doing an event uh, at uh, Imprints, that great bookstore on Hin Hindley Street. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, like, 2019. And, and that book was a real slow burner, Boy Swallows Universe. And, uh, and, and it was just starting to sort of chug along. And it was 20 people, 20 people at Imprints, and these beautiful people. And I'm telling these really deep stories about, like, how my mum, you know sort of met this fellow that I loved as a boy who happened to be this dangerously successful heroin dealer and I'm just bearing my soul and this these lot of people asked in the question time bit they said like uh Trent you know what's next and I'm and I told him it's like well I've got this massive imposter syndrome and um I don't think there might be a next one I think I'm just going to go back into my shell in Brisbane and just continue my journalism and uh because you know what, I've been trying to think about my second novel, which is this story about this girl who goes on this journey, I think, and she has gifts that fall from the sky, but I can't quite crack... This is all I'm telling these people in imprints. So I can't quite crack the, the <laughs> deeper layer. notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying, like, you know how a story, you're trying to have, okay, there's the story here, and then there's some double meaning here. I was trying to get a third meaning. So I was trying to get a third one, and I, I couldn't crack it. I'm in this Adelaide hotel the night before, and I couldn't crack it. And I'm like, well, of course I can't crack it because I'm not a novelist. I'm a, I'm a journo. I'm just some journo who got lucky and he's bloody lucky to be in Adelaide, you know? And uh, swear to God, mate, swear to God, this warm-faced, like, late 60s woman, she's like pocket rocket woman, stands up and she goes, um, she goes, uh, it was question time. She goes, um, I, you know, I, I don't have a question. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And she goes, I, I don't have a question. I've just got a statement. And, and she sort of sort of holds the floor and she just, um, you know, everyone sort of li listens and she goes, stop it! <laughs> stop that nonsense! Um, we're here. There's 20 people here because you wrote that book and it's sitting up there on the shelf next to Tim Winton. <laughs> you get your backside back to Brisbane and write us another one. So get this, then get this, get this. Then it's signing time, right? Sorry for my long answer, Anton. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Then it's question... I mean, then it's signing time. Another signing line, right? And there's like only 20 people, this one, because it's early days. And, and I see this woman in the centre. I go, man, if that woman, if she gets closer, I'm going to give her the biggest hug. And, and, mm -hmm. and she's got Boy Swallows Universe tucked under her arm. She comes up and she's like, I'd love you to sign this. And I come around the table and I just go, you don't know how much I needed to hear what you just told me you don't know what that means to me. And, and you were like some angel who dropped from the heavens and landed in Hindley Street to tell Trent Dalton to get his ass back to Brisbane. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know what I'm talking about. My name's Mem Fox. Oh. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Adelaide. Adelaide. Like just... 
okay, okay. And, and, but, you know, so Mem Fox and all of her magic, all of her possum magic comes along and just takes all of that crap away. All of that bloody privileged nonsense of me going, oh, poor Trent. What's poor Trent Dalton going to do for his second novel? Like, what a, what a white Australian male problem that one is, you know? And, uh, and, uh, and so, so then, then uh, cut to, like, September last year. Uh, uh, letter in the mail, handwritten, uh, the most beautiful stamp on it from Adelaide, lands in little Brisbane, you know, western suburbs of Brisbane, and it's a three-page handwritten letter from Mem Fox. And, um, and she goes, you know, essentially... Uh, she didn't say this, but I'm paraphrasing. She said, like, you bastard. Mm-hmm. As in, she was saying, I was weeping in bed last night. Not be- and she really dug the story of all our shimmering skies. And she loved the kid. You know, she loves Molly. And, and, uh, but, but then you just... Uh, she was a waterworks, she said, when she turned to the acknowledgements. And, I, and in the book, I said, in the acknowledgement page, you'll see it. It just says, thanks for the magic mem. And, uh, and, uh, and she wrote in this letter. So that letter sort of is on my fridge at home wow. in Brisbane. And, uh, yeah, so Adelaide MM, thank you so much. <laughs> like, I wrote the book because I came here, you know. So, yeah, sorry, Anton. Well, sorry, man. Um, yeah, we, yeah, it's like... Well, just five minutes left, so we'll take <laughs> yeah, questions from the audience. I know, now. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, the, the power of Memfox aside, you still had to get those words onto the page, yeah, right? Yeah, so. yeah. You said somewhere that the, the main challenge for Boy Swallows Universe was remembering, remembering yeah, all of yeah. the stuff that happened to you yeah. and your family and so on, getting it into some kind of ordered form. In your new book, you could kind of go anywhere. So <laughs> how, how did you, as a writer, as a sort of journalist-based writer, have to mm. change what you do in order to go into pure fiction? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, great question, Anton. Um, yeah, the truth is, like, I really did... Because it, it gets deep when you're talking about stuff like Boy Swallows Universe, and it's complicated because they are the people you love. And every word you say publicly can potentially hurt someone, you know, who's living. And at the same time, every word I said, I tried to make these people shine. But it's still... They're real people. And, you know, my, my three older brothers never asked for their youngest brother to wedge all of his 1980s into this wild book and stuff and and it was really complex and so I sort of tried to run away as far as I could from this kid Eli Bell who I love and I love still and I always will um but I really tried to run away from him and and by chance like my day job on the weekend Ozmag, you know I, I I got sent to sleep under the stars at Uluru I did a, I did I swear to god slept on in a swag under the stars at Uluru as I'm processing all this stuff like like dead set, like Joel Edgerton's on the phone back in Brisbane wanting to make it into a movie or a TV series. And I'm just like, what the hell? Like I'm, I'm out at Uluru just spinning. And, uh, and then I went to the top of the Flinders Ranges in South here and uh, did a big story, um, this Odyssey trip on the top of the Flinders Ranges and literally like um, the Elder Range, you know, which you guys would know. And like, um, on, you know, they dropped me on a heli- with, from a helicopter on the top of the Elder Range and... I'm, I'm parallel with eagles and really inspiring stuff. Like, by the way, Adelaide has a massive part to do with all our streaming skies. So it's, uh, <laughs> but, um, and South Australia does. But, uh, and then I got sent on a gig to Groot Island in the Northern Territory uh, on, off the west coast of Arnhem Land to do a story about this thing called MJD, which is, is this really tough condition that affects really clusters in, in really uh, a really damaging way in this particular indigenous cluster on Groot Island. And, and it kind of is one of those hor- horrible conditions that kind of leaves your body kind of um, useless and kind of but obviously your brain and everything else perfectly intact. And, and um, I met some incredible people there who fired me with the sort of some sort of talk about kind of magic and, and kind of some deep things, deep things. Mm. And all the while, all the while, and then, I, and then I come back to via Darwin. I start walking through the amazing Litchfield National Park, Anton, and that blows me away. And, but, but, but all at every one of these places, mate, I'm, um, there's a deeper layer. Here's the second layer. Um, I, I'm thinking about my old man, Noel, my dad, and uh, the truth of him He's totally Robert Bell. I don't know if you remember Boy Swallows Universe at all, but there's a guy named Robert Bell where Eli and Gus basically get shifted over to the north side of Brisbane and they sort of 
really reconnect with the father they never knew. And, and kind of that happened to us Dalton boys in, in the real world. And this beautiful guy, Noel, um, was like exactly Robert Bell. Like he's as close to a character as anyone else in, is in that book, more than anyone. And, you know, covered in tats and Jackie Howe singlet and crew cut and just a rogue of a man. He had the words um, F-U tattooed on the inside of his bottom <laughs> lip. Oh, man, he did. Oh, well, don't even get me started on that. We'd be sitting around Brackenridge Housing Commission and if we complained about his bad cooking, he'd, lean, he'd suck on a, on a drum and, you know, do, and then he'd just go like that. <laughs> funny guy, fun, amazing guy, like quite a, quite a character. And, uh, but, yeah, well, all that drum he smoked, it wasn't good because he died from em- em- emphysema in, like, 2015. And, and that guy used to wake each day and he slept on a high jump mattress that he got doing community service at this school called Nashville Primary, which was about 300 metres from my school, Brighton State School. Thankfully, it, this didn't happen at my school. He didn't have to do community service at my school, thank God. <laughs> um, but uh, he took this high jump mattress home from the janitor, used to sleep on that. He'd wake up and roll 20 drum cigarettes and line them out and, uh, and just smoke cigarettes and read books. And, uh, and that was his life, you know, and... Uh, and you're meant to want more in life than that. It's a dangerous thing if you love books that much. And I know you all love books, but don't, don't, you know, you've got to do other stuff as well, you know. And, uh, and, uh, but the great tragedy that I kept thinking as I'm going around Flinders Ranges and, you know, uh, Uluru, I'm just thinking about Dad and just going, man, I wish you could see this. You know, look what I did. Like, I never did any. You know, he's always really proud, but he's just like, I didn't do anything like that, like write a book like that, man. And it's like, it makes me, gives me chills now and it gets me emotional now, just thinking like, he didn't get to see Boy Swallows Universe on that shelf with like Steinbeck and stuff. And that would have been so amazing for him. And anyway, so as I'd be at these places doing my work and I'd file my stories and I'd put my notepad down and invariably, you know, those motels, like you're out in those areas and there's always like a brick motel with like a small circular table that you, you're, yes, you've yeah. done enough journal gigs where, you know, you're in some pretty cheap motel room and there's a table and I'd always have like a beer at about like 5.30, just put the notepad down and then I'd talk to the sky. And I'd just, I don't know why, I'm not even that spiritual, but I'd just say stuff like, can you believe this, Dad? Like, can you believe this ride I'm on? And can you see this? Like, I wish you could. And, uh, and then I, and I was struck by a thought of, um, you know, uh, that, like, that's beautiful. Like, he, I'm not hearing anything back. You know, the sky doesn't talk back, but... Well, sometimes it does, actually. I read it in here. Sometimes it does. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, it, exactly, because it felt good, Anton. It felt really yeah. nice. It felt really nice. And, and then I got thinking, well, we all talk to the sky sometimes, or maybe not all of us, but maybe 80% of us do, and... And we're saying beautiful things. We're not, we're, not, we're not talking real estate to the sky. We're not talking about Ikea tables. We're, talking, we're saying things like, I miss you and I need you. Um, where are you? Why did you go? You know, we're saying beautiful sky whispers that are just the most sacred private conversations. And I really got thinking, like, that's a really powerful, universal thing that I might be able to write about. And so... That became the research, like just, just like every, you know, just get out the door, go see a bit of life and, and a story will come. And I had this, I did have this story about this girl, Molly, and I wanted to inspire my own daughters who were that age and, but I wanted, and I wanted a quest, an adventure. And then I was really hit by this thing about, okay, what if her, she had no friends, but her best friend was the sky. And, uh, and then that's when I had the, had the book, yeah. So as we learned right at the outset that her mother is her second best friend because her best friend is the sky. So I think we know from that point that this is quite an unusual (laughs) protagonist that we have, a very unusual little girl. Tell us about um, Molly sort of under all that layer of dirt and cemetery clay. Oh, oh. (laughs) what a beautiful (laughs) way to phrase a question. Um, uh, (laughs) um, My daughter Sylvie, my youngest daughter Sylvie, I've got two girls, 14 and 12, and when I wrote this, they were 13 and 11. And my youngest daughter, Sylvie, poor kid, goes to school and her teacher's reading Boy Swallows Universe. And this is a pretty middle-class sort of suburban school, um, pretty, pretty nice area of Brisbane. Um, oh, it's the gap. It's, it's the kid got to the gap where the kid's trying to go um, in, in, in Boy Swallows Universe. Dreams can come true. You can move into a cul-de-sac in middle-class, the gap, Brisbane. And uh, that's what I did. And... Uh, 
and, and my kid Sylvie goes to this school and her teacher's reading this book about her dad um, and, and her grandmother and how she kind of did time and, and met this heroin dealer and all this wild stuff happened. Just regular stuff. Regular yeah. stuff. And, um, and it was a really beautiful teacher, this teacher, because she sort of said uh, to the classmates, like, don't you dare give young Sylvie Dalton a hard time about this or anything, you know, because she should be bloody proud. There was a beautiful, you know, teachers are just the best freaking people on earth. But this, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, but Sylvie came home that day, Anton, and she's just like, Dad, so tell me more about this story. Because <laughs> I told her a bit and I want, you know, you got to understand her grandmother now is just this beautiful, you got to picture like Colin Minogue in the I Should Be So Lucky clip but like 50 years older. And she'd look exactly the same. She probably would. She probably would, <laughs> Kylie, yeah. Um, she will, yeah. Um, and, uh, but that woman goes to Grandparents' Day and she's just this sweet grandma who kind of looks after my kids when Fiona and I go out and stuff. And anyway, so, uh, you know, she's asking me a bit more about it and then I tell her a bit more and she goes, but hang on. You're a, you're a father of two girls, you know, and you wrote this story about these two beautiful boys, Eli and Gus. Why don't you write a story about two beautiful girls? And, and, and that, was, that was a really big challenge. That was a great challenge, you know, because what am I here for? It's not to tell stupid stories about my hugs and stuff and, you know, tell yarns. And it's about inspiring them ultimately, you know, and, and, and it was a great sort of, sort of thing to hear just as I embark because you've got to write from a place that's true. And you've got to write from your soul. And, and there's nothing more connected to my soul than those two girls. And so somehow I put all of Beth, my eldest daughter's um, uh, intuition and, and uh, quiet magic. And I put all of Sylvie's recklessness and strength and um, dive into a cactus type of um, wildness. And, and what came out was Molly Hook. And, um, and I love the kid, you know, because she's so close to me. And then, okay, well, you know, she... And then I proceeded to put her through hell, which is terrible. But, um, but I am also trying to sort of genuinely, in some weird way, hoping that my girls will read that book and, and learn a lot about overcoming obstacles and, and just how you have your grandmother's fire in you. You have all the wildness that, that put my mum on her path you can look at that not as a bad thing. You can look at that as a really strengthening thing and you can look at your grandma as the woman who survived the worst kind of shit you wouldn't believe, you know? And, and so I'm really proud to tell Boyce Weller's universe's story as well as let that inform kind of all our shimmering skies. And so ultimately, mate, I'm still just dealing with all the baggage in the back of the head anyway, but just masking it in this wild odyssey across Australia through this girl, Molly Hook. It's great that it all turned out so good for your family. And I love that quote from your mother after a Christmas dinner where she said to you, she wouldn't have it any other way, oh, which is, man. that yeah, is yeah, just yeah. fantastic uh, sentiment. But just to get back to the book, um, mm. the starting point is a family of a different kind, a family of grave diggers mm. outside Darwin, 1930s, 1936, I think, mm. is when we first meet Molly. Um, it's a very particular time and place setting as we know what's to come during the war why was that an, ent an entry point for you an interesting entry point for you oh great question mate really good questions from this guy <laughs> but um the um the um the, the tr yeah you know a writer needs to write with all five senses I believe you know I, I, I like I have this little sort of note thing Anton like on my computer and I just sort of, and it says five cents it as in like if I'm stuck or I don't know where to go, just think of the senses, think of the sounds and think of the smells and the touch. But ultimately, you're trying to actually use all of those things to get to the sixth, the sixth sense. And I don't mean the spooky sense. I mean the sense that we all don't understand, the one that, that makes us love our kids and makes us love the people that you guys are sitting next to. And, you know, that, that thing we can't explain that is captured by that beautiful word, love. And, uh, you know, so I'm trying to do all of that and kind of... Um, and, by, and, and you need to put it in worlds that create that stuff. And so I created this kind of Australian Gothic world that that cemetery allowed me access into. And you go to Darwin and it hits you with all of those five senses. And it's, a, it's an extraordinary place. Like it, and back then it was even more extraordinary. It was a complete 
it was an American Wild West town set on the tip of Australia, and it was a frontier town, and and it was a multicultural town. It was the really the birth of of multicultural Australia. It was an incredible place, and you didn't get to that place um, by accident. You were either running to something or running from something, and uh, that always makes for an amazing city. And and uh, you know, Darwin was the first place I ever flew to when I was 20 years old and got my first job in journalism and, uh, and it hit me and I kept on going back and back and back and, uh, and then I just thought, yeah, it's too good. And then and I start reading things by Ger- Geraldine Brooks, you know, that brilliant yes, yes. Australian writer, Geraldine Brooks and Year of Wonders like, was a massive book that my old man that I just spoke about passed to me and said, you've got to read this, this woman's brilliant and... And, and, you know, in the writing of Year of Wonders, Geraldine Brooks, and I had this quote stuck up above my computer for the longest time. Um, she said, she, she wrote that book, Year of Wonders. It's about a plague community in Europe and, you know, this beautiful woman's trying to deal with the fact that everyone's dying around her, but finding love inside that world at the same time. And Geraldine Brooks had this great quote in, in the writing of it, which was, do never be afraid to see dead people. And, and what she's talking about is essentially what I'm talking about with Sky Whispers, is don't be afraid to talk to the dead and don't be afraid to talk to the ones you miss and, and because there's such power in it. And, and what better place for Molly to grow up talking to the dead than a cemetery? And, uh, but also the symbolism of, of here's a girl uh, whose family is just filled with buried secrets and she spends her day digging up secrets, you know, and so it's sort of... Um, became quite a powerful kind of start point for sure and 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 could her life get any lower than literally six feet under and it will end at the highest of highs you know so it's sort of a nice place to start well she certainly finds stuff down there that we don't (laughs) nobody would want to get their hands on but you know even amidst all of the death and trauma and drama and there's plenty of it Mm. in the book she still finds time to read. She's reading all the time. In fact, her mother says to her, read all the books that you, know, mm. that you can find. Yeah. Um, she finds room for humour. And in fact, when there's one scene when a baker dies and his sort of <laughs> grieving family comes to them to find something to put on his gravestone, she comes up with the, <laughs> with the classic line. Uh, the immortal line Molly comes up with is, like morning bread, may your spirit rise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think to me, Trent, that kind of just, the, the thread that runs through it is that there's that sort of change of tone that it's not all serious and, you know, people killing one another and so on. There is that sort of the moments of levity and say, you know, we are still having a good time reading this book. Oh, Anton, you're giving me chills, mate. I mean, can I tell you... Honestly, can I tell you where that comes from? I'll, like, is this a bit of code? Of, can I cone of silence this? Like, is, <laughs> just between listening. us, Anton and you guys, and um, oh, that comes from. I'll tell you, like midnight, Brackenridge Housing Commission, blood on the walls, like 1991, whatever, 89 to 95, blood on the walls, total chaos. Uh, four boys running down the left side concrete ramp, jumping a fence, running up a street called McKearing Street, shitting ourselves, and I'm crying because I'm the youngest brother, and I always cried. And halfway down McKearing Street, my eldest brother Joel cracks a gag, and he makes his youngest brother laugh. And it's the most beautiful thing a human's probably ever done for me. And there's Aussie kids tonight doing that for their younger siblings. Mm. And I find that incredible. And I genuinely am getting emotional here talking about this, but it's a fact. There are these magical Aussie kids out there every night um, dealing with the worst kind of stuff. And, and these Aussie kids are finding this resilience and they're finding this humour and they're getting by and they're getting slowly walking the rocks and climbing the rocks towards 18 when they can write their own story and not have it written by them, uh, for them by the adults, you know. And, uh, and, and I just... I, mate, I think I wrote that entire book from the emotion that I get when I think about my beautiful older brothers making me laugh, you know, in, in shitty situations. And, you know, I just find that a really... Again, you need to write from these really precious sort of places and... and um, cause that's life. Like, it's like, you know, when you're at a funeral and like 
oh man, my dad's funeral, we had this stonefish called Keef. I swear to God, and it was the funniest thing because my old man had a pet and it was called Keef, like Keef, like as in Keef Richards. And, um, and he called it Keef, like K-E-E-F. He caught it in the Palmerston Pat. He was a mud crabber, my dad, at the end. And, he, and, and he, he caught this stonefish called Keef and kept it in a jar of, like, formaldehyde. And, uh, and he talked to this freaking stonefish. He was a lonely man. He'd get the steak out and go, oh, a minute steak again, Keefy. <laughs> Lucky us, day Keefy. <laughs> and we're just telling yarns like this at Dad's funeral. We're all weeping, missing the guy so much. And we're telling Dad's stupid Keefy stories, and it made it, made it all beautiful. And, and now Keefy, Keefy, Keefy helped me write that book. Like, Keefy, I was, I was bestowed Keef, and, um, and uh, oh, I swear to God. And then my, now it, my nephew, my beautiful ne- my brother Ben's son, Ethan, we did an official, like, passing of Keefe. <laughs> It's like your papa, your papa. He pulled this stonefish out of the Palmerston Passage and now it belongs to you. And uh, yeah, so he's got this horrendously ugly... He's named Keith because the face looked like Keith, Keith Richards. Richards. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but, you know, it's, you know, and that's it. It's, it's, that's Australia. Like, it's so dark, Australia. Like, it can be so dark, this country of ours, yet so beautiful. And, and that's life, you know, and so... I think for the rest of my days, if I get to write more books, I will write The Light and the Dark, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you were talking about Darwin, the nature of Darwin, the Wild West. I'm just going to read a few paragraphs just to kind of set the scene for what Darwin was like in those days. And maybe you could comment about your, mm. your attitude towards writing them. The Darwin sunset is gold, then red, then purple, then black. The town is corrugated iron fortress homes that fall with a sneeze. Dirt for roads and dirt for air. Cyclone ravaged for a century. Architectural impermanence. Darwin dreams in sun golds and earth browns. It dreams in violent rain and wind. Nungalinya, Sam Greenway once told Molly Hook. That's the dreamtime ancestor in charge of the cyclones and storms that tear the skin off town pubs and stores with a single whistle from his lips. Sam said Nungalinya is angry at all the white settlers who keep landing in Port Darwin, keep skipping ashore with their pickaxes and shovels to chip away at Old Man Rock. Nungalinya, Sam said, lifts fishing boats from the sea, sucks them into the air and bats them 100 yards through the wind against shore rocks that smash metal hulls the same way all those white settlers smash the shells of fat-clawed East Point mud crabs. The Darwin dream has a smell, and it smells like the maggots eating all those discarded crab claws. It smells like all the cut ends of vegetables left to rot in Chinatown bins that dingoes and lost dogs tip over the, over the dark. Darwin dreams in drink and sweat, warm beer and toil, fat-bellied fist fighters and men who piss in buckets behind their bar stools, empty car bodies left abandoned in the, in the streets outside town by empty men who shot themselves dead inside them. It's the frontier territory where nothing stays nailed down. America's wild west all the way down here in Australia's wild north. Some come by boat and some just emerge from the dust. They crawled out of the dirt and dusted off their shoulders and staggered into the Victoria Hotel on Smith Street for three shots of black rum then a glass of water. Darwin dreams in dinner dances and wood chopping contests and travelling freak show tents where Sydney wolf boys and Melbourne pig girls reel in horror at the ticket buying Darwin locals staring at them through the glass. <laughs> that is fantastic writing, you have to say. Oh, that man. is amazing writing. Come here. <laughs> um, can, can you read my next Audible book? Uh, <laughs> Anton, whoa! That was beautiful. Thank you. So that is not just a description about Darwin. That is really kind of getting under the skin. Where does that come from? That's, um, that's, that's that momentum writing. I really love that. Like, I'm just hearing you say that. That's just, just spill it, man. Just, like, just give everything. You know, like Hemingway, like, writing's easy. Just sit down and open a vein, you know, and it's like, it's just give, give everything you feel. And it's like why I'd give these long answers at these things. I'm such a... Like, I just want to give you every part of the story and it gets me in such trouble and, and it means I write these books that people go, far out, man, this guy needs to just take a chill pill. But, um, but I just can't not just give it, mate. And, um, and it's just beautiful to hear you read that because I am doing that sense thing. And so many amazing things happen regarding that, you know. Like, I've got this amazing woman named Tess Addy who helped me see that place through her eyes and, and be passionate about it. And, and Tess runs these 
Northern Territory Indigenous tours and I'm just this white boy douchebag in Brisbane and I get onto Google and I see Tess knows everything there is to know about that place. And I phone up and I go, hi, my name's Trent Dalton. I'm this uh, journo guy and I wrote a book called Boy Swallows Universe and um, my next book is, I think, about this girl named Molly Hook and, um, and I want her to go on this adventure. And I told her the whole story. So along the way, these four gifts fall from the sky. The first sky gift is, is, a, um, is a map. The second sky gift is a friend. The third sky gift is a miracle. The fourth sky gift is the end. I'm talking like this on the phone and, and uh, I'm telling the yarn and tell the whole story. And, and um, I said, I just, I just want to sort of see if someone like you could show me some places where she might go. And, and I just want to get passionate about it. And she goes, yeah, come on up. I'll show you where she goes. And it was the greatest gift. And, and you can't not come back to Brisbane then, having gone and done that and had beautiful people like Tess show you her world. I mean, and her ancestors go back 60,000 years in that world. And you come back so um, alive with landscape and place and a sense of place. And, and I just, I just crowbar, I just threw it all in and just, just soul coughed it again in a different way. And, uh, yeah, you know, it really reads like that. Like, it's like there must be so many commas in there. But, um, but you know, I just need to write like that. And, and I find it a really powerful way to write because it becomes this kind of mantra. Like, and you're, not, you're hopefully trying to give the reader the mantra, but you, you, you're mesmerising yourself and you're sort of... You're taking yourself away. And, and in the... Like, not... You know, I'm sorry to keep going back to Howzo Brisbane, but it's like... I, when I was a kid, like, that... You wanted to escape... You just wanted to escape, and Steinbeck helped me do that through that type of writing. And and he would write about Cannery Row, and just I'd go, holy moly! Like he just described the Brackenridge pub, <laughs> and uh, even though you know he's talking about the U.S. or uh, you know or or Geraldine Brooks writing about Europe in the 1500s, holy moly! She's talking about my mum and what it feels like to lose someone she loves and you know and it's all that it's just they're doing it with this amazing language and it's such a such a spellbinding thing to do if you can do it so did your friend Tess um, help you as well because it's there's a bit of a cultural minefield here a white Australian mm. man going deep into country writing about oh. quite serious Aboriginal things how did you navigate that and absolutely like it's and and to the point where I was like I I don't even think I'll go there. Like, I was really... And then... But then I go, well, that's that's not the right move. That can't be the right move. And and just... Ultimately, I did it the way I do it in journalism. So, so one thing I do in journalism, I've written about Indigenous issues for 20 years as a journo, and the best thing you can do, you go into a community, is go to the person who knows the most and say, I know nothing, can you please tell me what you know and and I tried to just do it that way the journo style and just go and send people like Tess hey can you just read that is that mm. just on the nose to you and then if she reads it and goes you know what that's exactly what we saw wasn't it and you know that sort of thing really helps and um but mate com completely and and I didn't do it lightly and and I've had people say mate I wish you wrote more about Sam and Longcoat Bob and I've had them say that they're like mate I love those guys and I just said I couldn't. It's not my place. And and I, I'm really sort of adamant about that. Like I wish I, I Sam's my favourite character in the book. Lonko Bob's probably my third favourite character. And but it's not my place. There's too many good Indigenous writers to that in Australia that can write Sam's story. What I want to write was Molly Hook being very similar to me, um, butting up against the awe of 60,000 years of culture. And I felt if I can just do that and then, and then write a girl who has a crush on a 16-year-old boy. I, I know what that would be like. I know what that, I know what that feels like to be the 12-year-old boy. So do I. Yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and if I write Sam with all of my heart and, and if I worship that guy as much as Molly does, then I can possibly just write that character. And... And but it's something, mate. I didn't do lightly, and and it, and it's so tricky. And you know, and and the very nature of the story, it's so dangerous to write about a kind of a Wizard of Oz-like story. 
where she's going to find this guy, Longcoat Bob. She's cursed and she feels like her life has been cursed and she feels she doesn't, it's the sins of the past are coming back to haunt her family and she believes all the answers lie in this guy, Longcoat Bob, this Indigenous man she's gone to find. But I had to do, I had to, every step of the way, undermine the fact that all of the answers aren't in this magical you know, dare I say, the magical other, you know. And so it's sort of this really complex thing and every step of the way, Sam and Longcoat Bob must, in the book, call bullshit on that type of thinking. And so it sort of became this really deep, hopefully layered thing where I'm trying to sort of talk about this kind of um, gap of understanding that I, even as a journo, have, have kind of been guilty of in the past and kind of this idea of... of um, of kind of taking those amazing stories and kind of letting them sort of evocatively fuel your journalism, but missing the point of why that person wanted to talk to you in the first place. And so it's a, yeah, it's a very tricky thing. And and you know, I caught I caught I got to catch up with Tess up in the NT, and she was like, "We're doing this," and she was front and center. And I'm just going, "That woman wrote this book. That woman is." amazing you need to go on one of her tours and it was beautiful we were under the shimmering skies of the nt and i got to sort of tell people a bit about the gift that she gave me by just letting me have a little peek inside her world and and i just hope i sort of did it in the right way for her and i guess the other thing about molly that i really love that underlying everything is her love of poetry and her love yeah. of reading yeah you could you can't understand the book and you certainly can't understand the title without knowing that about oh, yeah, her right yeah yeah, yeah. So the other thing I wanted to also just touch on is the bombing of Darwin, which is kind of... This book is not about the bombing of Darwin, but mm. it is a kind of the backdrop at the start of this amazing adventure that these yeah. two female adventurers go on, trailed by this, you know, the, the villain from Central Casting who happens to be a family <laughs> member. Um, Central. <laughs> and the amazing thing, though, is that um, one of the gifts that fall from the sky is someone directly involved uh, in that yeah. conflict yeah. so you were saying earlier about when you were writing boy swallows universe being aware of not hurting people that you know you love or that are important to you there are probably a lot of people who have very good understanding of what that bombing of darwin meant from an australian perspective you've written a very sympathetic character that was technically the enemy. He was. Mm. He came in from mm. outside trying to kill Australians. Mm. How careful did you need to be about that? About saying, "Hey, we like. We actually like this guy, even though he's trying to kill us." Ah, oh, well, it's the story of my life. I mean, <laughs> I was raised by a, a villain. I mean, I was raised, and it's like I don't know why, Anton. I spent twenty years interviewing um, killers and drug dealers and really nasty people and trying to find the good side of them. And, and I, it's some weird thing, and I think it's a product of my childhood, and, and I think I try to do the same thing um, in my stories. But how could you not feel sympathetic for the Japanese fighter pilots who came to Australia that day, who had just come from the trauma? And even though we forget to see the trauma of Pearl Harbor as trauma for the fighters, but it's going to mess your head up if you're the person tasked with killing that many people. And I find it easy to sympathise with Yukio because um, they came from Pearl Harbour and he comes from Pearl Harbour and the next place they go is the bombing of Darwin. Um, February 19, 1942 is the most dramatic day for me, for my mind. We're in a dramatic year, like period right now in Australia, horrendously dramatic. But if you're just looking at one day... At around 10 a.m., if you were going to be um, wanted to see some drama in Australia, in the history of Australia, 10 a.m. standing in Darwin, that was about as dramatic as life gets when 243 Japanese fighters in a V formation fly across that beautiful Darwin sky and bomb the heck out of Darwin and then proceed to, um, continue to, until November that year. Um, incredible um, kind of, um, you know, moment in time. When I was in Darwin, and I'm a journo bowerbird, right? You've got to be a bowerbird. As you know, you would be, Anton, you're looking for stories permanently. And one story I came across really early was the story of Petty Officer Hajime Toyashima. So he's on that, he's in that fight, that, that flight, um, that V-shaped flight squadron. And, uh, and 
his zero fighter gets shot down. He lands on Australian soil. He hits his forehead on, on the flight controls. He wraps his head in a bandage and he hops out of his aeroplane and he proceeds to wander aimlessly through the Australian scrub with nothing but a pistol in his hand. And uh, along the way, he runs into 10 First Nations people, one of whom, this incredibly brave man named Matthias Ulangara, um, creeps up behind him with a tomahawk, holds it to Hajimi's head, and, uh, and Matthias thus becomes the first Australian to capture a Japanese soldier on Australian soil. Like, phenomenal story, It right? is a fantastic story. It's I mean, like, you couldn't make that up. You couldn't. Why didn't Baz make that movie, you know? And, um, <laughs> but... Uh, and then I'm starting to, you know, then I'm having my dad chats and I'm sky talk and I'm thinking about these gifts that fall from the sky and I thought, well, damn, that's one gift. Like, what if, what if the enemy f- fell from the sky but actually turned out to be the best friend Molly ever had? And uh, I thought, that's power. That's, that's, that's a good story. And, uh, you know, so it was sort of beautiful to write about this character who had his own demons and his own reasons for finding his redemption in this wild place. And the thing I love most about about Yukio, he's on borrowed time and he's convinced that this beautiful place, and if you look out here, man, and that light's shining there and you, you could almost think for a bit that you're in heaven. Like, you know, you know it, it's not that silly a thought or, you know, so it's sort of, it, I love this idea, this guy's walking through this amazing place called Australia, just going, what the hell is this place, you know? And it is beautiful and, and he taps into this thing, don't even get me started on little wonders, you know, little, mm. little wonders uh, is just... This really important thing, like, like today, can I tell you, my, like, I've seen, like, three little wonders today, Anton, can I tell, I'll, I'll, go ahead. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm so sorry, long stories, but 6am, I'm coming out of Brisbane, walking out the front door, I've got my bag packed to get to the airport, and I'm closing the door, I've got my right, bag in my right hand, and this bug, this bug, I swear to God, it's, it's sort of this luminous kind of red and blue and it looks like a marble with wings, just comes hovering beside my head. And I'm like, that is a little wonder. Two, 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 two. I'm on the plane to Adelaide. I'm on the plane to Adelaide. And this is what Yukio does. Yukio sees like a caterpillar and loses his mind and thinks it's like a praying mantis he thinks is magic, you know, and, and it's, like, it's the way of seeing the world. And, and, and two... I'm flying down Adelaide, I look to my right, and I see those amazing kind of South Australian lakes, you know, those, that, just those series, in the, the, the yellow pooled kind of dirt lake, it looks like sort of a caramel milkshake, and it's wondrous, like it's utterly wondrous, and it reminds me of my dad's face when, when like he was dying of emphysema, like, and so that was wondrous, like the connection, that was wondrous. Three, I've been thinking about this, three. Three, I turn on the telly at the Hotel Intercontinental. I'm ironing my shirt, right? I'm ironing my shirt. And that salt and pepper song, Shoop, comes on. And I just start getting down to Shoop. And I'm starting, I'm like ironing my shirt. And I'm like, can I get a fries with that shake, shake booty? And I'm just like, that song is a thing of wonder. (laughs) And I'm just saying... Fourth, fourth wonder. Anton and I come here today and we look out at this. And it's just all about that's what Yukio does. He's decided that he's on borrowed time. He suddenly, he knows he's on borrowed time. He knows he doesn't have long, no matter what happens to that guy. Whether he gets found, whether he gets shot, whether he gets court-martialed, he knows he's on borrowed time. Um, so he's appreciating every little wonder he sees. And, um, and it's just... It's a great lesson I'm trying to incorporate into my daily life. <laughs> just, just a final word on... <laughs> Thank you. We'll, t- we'll take some questions in a moment, but just a final word on that POW, which I thought was an extraordinary story. Hajime Toyashima ended up in a POW camp in Cowra in New South Wales yeah. and ended up getting killed while trying to break out of it. It's like, it, that's an amazing story in it's itself. It's an amazing story. And they were so brave, those guys who escaped. They, they, yeah, they made the yeah. breakout knowing that all likelihood they were going to get shot. Yeah, incredible. You know, when I was reading this, I thought, what are the chances of, you know, as one of those kamikaze pilots sort of coming into <laughs> Australia and then sort of parachuting out of his plane and then landing, you know, crash landing in the desert and then somebody finds him? 
but in fact it did happen. Yeah. It's, it's just quite incredible. Yeah. So I want to talk yeah. to you a little bit about landscape, uh, Trent. For those of you who haven't had the chance, there's this fantastic exhibition just up the road, the Clarice Beckett up at the gallery. It is truly amazing, just the, you know, the eye she has for seeing the landscape through different forms of light at different times of the day. And I think you would have had a similar kind of thing in the, the outback landscape where you were traveling. Talk to us a bit. There's a lot of description in this book about engagement with the land, about mm. the flora and fauna that the, the people come across, some friendly, some not. But I think it was quite, it was quite a strong sense I, I had of connection with the land. Mm. Maybe talk to us a little bit about your, the way you wrote about the land. Just that sense. My, my father-in-law is an entomologist. He's a really quite a brilliant entomologist. And all the time, I'm sitting with him in the backyard of his yard. And we're at some barbecue and he'll see a, a little beetle. And he'll give me the most vivid backstory about that beetle and why it's gone to that plant. And, and I'm just... He's helped me open my eyes. My wife told me a story about when she would go on walks with that beautiful man when she was a girl and he'd just go, shh, like, stop, stop talking. Can we just sit here for half an hour? We're just going to sit on this log for half an hour. We won't let life just fly past us. We won't fly through this landscape. And, you know, it, it all taps into this kind of appreciation of the wonder of it all. And, and you know, oh, man, for me... Well, don't get me started on the things I saw out at Groot Island where there's this amazing man with this particular condition that I was telling you about named Buckler. And he walks me into the forest, this wild Groot Island kind of wild scrub, and he just goes, so, can you feel it? Like, he's like, can you feel it? And I'm like, what? And he goes, just shut up and stop asking me questions and just, just feel it for a bit. And I just thought that was so powerful to sort of just go, yeah, and if you just... You know, I, I just think, and you know, I've got this head voice that won't shut up. And, and, and in the writing of that, the note-taking and my appreciation of going, what does that bark look like and what does that thing remind me of in my life to, to understand my, my world? So if I look at a piece of bark, what does it remind me of in my little Bracken Ridge world? And, and making those... Con it's like me looking out at the South Australian desert and seeing my old man's face. Like, I... That's the connections I have with landscape now. And sort of just that sort of thing where I'm making it, I can remember that thing and go, oh, suddenly that landscape got very personal. And, and sort of, you know, that's what I was trying to do in the thing. And, and Molly, Molly is kind of finding her, her magic as well. She's got that ma magic inside her. And, okay, so at some point um, we lose our magic, like, and, and it's just life. Like we become these really responsible adults and we, we can't indulge in the magic all the time, you know? And Molly, Molly um, is having her magic removed prematurely though. She doesn't even get to 18 before it's, you know, the poor kid was bloody eight when her magic got lost. So, so the adults took it, but, but she's finding it again in that landscape. And, and sort of that's, that's the way I was trying to write it. And not even, you know, it's, it's, it's Australia, but I amped it up too, though. I turned it up to 11, and it's sort of, it is a, it is a hyper sort of real kind of Australia, and, and I wanted it to feel closer to Oz, you know, genuinely like Dorothy's Oz, you know. So it's, it's we've got the black and white Kansas, which is the bombing of Darwin and all those pubs and all that horrendous stuff that Molly has to get through, but her Oz is waiting for her, and it's the land, and, um, and it has every answer she needs to... Uh, <laughs> Well, and of course, the answer is, isn't, um, isn't even indeed out there. It's, it's in here. Yeah. We've got a microphone just over there if you want to ask Trent any questions. Marg will make sure that you are physically distanced. Uh, Rebecca Mackay, some of you may remember, was sat on this stage two years ago. She wrote The Great Believers, a great novel, shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. She said an interesting thing, and I'll get your comment on this. Mm. Um, she said that female writers are good at writing gay characters but heterosexual male writers are not good at writing female characters. What did you think you had to tap into to get past that? Mm. Um, f well, firstly, and this applies to everything, a human is a human is a human. We all face the same bigger human uh, obstacles, and I'm talking about soul. You know, I mean, a human soul is the same for all of us, but genuinely tapping into you know here is a uh, here, 
I probably not, am not expert on like a 65 year old woman, but I bloody you've, you've know. You've had a few encounters. You told I us. did. I did. <laughs> I was trying to get as close as I could, but I know, I know right now, like the topic, uh, the, the 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 human <laughs> that I'm interested most is is my 12 year old and 14 year old girls, and I thought I I can almost speak about what it see the world through them because I'm obsessed with them and. And then Greta, well, Greta, who's this cantankerous, feisty, sort of gin-swilling, powerful woman, well, she's my wife. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, just, just go there and uh, just reach. And, but, you know, don't, I don't know, I just, I just try and get past the cliche in the sense of get to the story and let its... Its story will win in the end, and and their their character and who they are will be shown through the things they're doing in the story. So let their actions speak for them, not not my stupid sort of little descriptions about what a woman's body looks like or mm. or what I think it might feel like or something like. <laughs> I'm writing. Can you believe this? I got asked by this British um, brilliant um, brilliant writer um, to um, Hillary Jordan um, to 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 do this. Um, uh, sex book and uh, like a like like it's anonymous and you you get to write about sex like anything you want and it's and and I wrote it and and what I did I tried to do this kind of journalistic look at at sex and like as if I was sort of David Attenborough in the bedroom <laughs> and like the man inserts or all that stuff sorry sorry, yeah, sorry. but uh um but but um my wife reads it and just like, what is this? Like, you know, so it's like, you just got to be careful, you know, what you do and what lane you kind of deviate from. But, um, but, but it's been fun. I've finished that story and, and I really enjoyed it. And it was again, trying, but, but it was such a good thing to write because I, it ends up becoming, um, you know, writing about the stupid sort of my views on, on lovemaking versus hers and, you know, and how, how sort of, all the assumptions us blokes make sometimes in the bedroom and how good we might think we are, but we're not, and all this stuff. But, uh, but it's, it's really interesting. It's like, yeah, can we do it? And should we? And, um, and, but guess what? I'm doing it again. I, because the story warranted it for my third novel. And so, and, and I, just, I just sort of go, well, the story's asking for it, so I've, I've got to do it, you know? And, but I just try and do it in the best way I can and, and, uh, and let let the character drive the story. Okay. And, and, and right. Any questions about sex from the floor? <laughs> <laughs> Why did I mention the S word? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry to disappoint you, Trent, but thanks very much for coming to Adelaide. And thanks, Anton, as well. And I, was ha I did have a question, but I'm sorry. It's sort of been subsumed by what you've said, and it was about Groot Island and how that has informed your writing. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, I wanted to sort of tell you a little story, if I please, may. Please, please. Um, well, as a journalist, you've probably wondered whatever happens to all those old paper copies of the stuff you write, you know, like those old Weekend Australian magazines oh. that hang around? Yeah. Well, one of them ended up just up the road at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in an oncologist's waiting room. And a friend of mine who was uh, visiting that particular office um, happened to read it. And um, the work you did on Groot Island, illuminating this unusual disease that you mentioned, uh, the... Mercado-Joseph disease, MJD, um, it became the ignition spark for a unique cause. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. What? but um, Anna Michael, a South Australian teacher, singer, actor and ovarian cancer sufferer, by chance read your story while in that waiting room, just to stop the road, as I say. Anyway, it turned out that that was just the last months of her life, about six months after your story was published... And your work struck this incredibly powerful chord with Anna. She read about the genetically carried MJD disease and had, with her passion for reconciliation, she immediately connected with those affected by the MJD story with her own situation. Because not long before, she just found out that she had inherited the BRCA1 gene from oh. her father's side and no idea about it. And, of course, had she had... Had she have known, she could have take some, taken some preventative action. But anyway, I digress. So it was because of your story that Anna's mob for NJD was born 
and that was a fundraising initiative um, through Chuffed and uh, also on Facebook, where she was able to spread the word about MJD and raise funds. And so rather than flowers or chocolate for herself, she'd rather see support for the MJD Foundation and the tremendous work they do, which you've written about. Um, the key really was that the sense of purpose in setting up Anna's mob for MJD gave her a focus and it gave her a meaning to her illness. And it just brought such genuine excitement and amazing amazement in her as the, as the funds rolled in, as she got sicker and sicker. That is, that's a wonderful story. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but we, we kind of squeeze one That more is in. the most amazing non-question I've heard. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you are not getting out of here without a hug. I'm coming. And here's to Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you for both books. You know you're brilliant. No need to tell you that. Um, <laughs> I really say, don't say thank it anyway. you. It means the world. <laughs> I, he knows. Um, I didn't know you were so funny. Thank you. And, um, you're beautiful. Uh, you're, thank you. Um, we do a book club, and my girls, we decided to write a question to you oh, after, wow. after two books. I need to read it. Yeah, please. And we notice in both books that there are parts of story that take place underground, under the house, oh, yeah. in tunnels and caves. Oh, wow. What is that about? <laughs> <laughs> that's it's what, going deep now. That's what, <laughs> that is one question. Um, in the second book, you know the strange community in the cave? Yes. Uh, is that based on any real events? And can you please explain their place in the story? Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> um, they are in both brilliant questions. And I've never been asked them, and I'm so glad you asked them. Um, when I was, like, like, whatever I was in 1984, I was probably five. Um, this fella I was telling you about, this heroin dealer, um, my mum had fallen in love with. My brother Joel taps me on the shoulder. He's like, Trent, Trent, come and have a look at this. And we follow Joel anywhere and we followed him into this guy's room, this guy, Lyle, in the book. It's not his real name. But uh, um, I open up this sliding door of Lyle's built-in sort of sliding cupboard and Joel, and Joel gets down on his hands and knees and he shifts some clothes aside and there's a wall behind him and he pushes this wall in and a compression mechanism pops in and pops back out, revealing a secret kind of chasm going Lord knows where. And Joel, we're all Queensland kids with, like, dirty feet, and Joel puts his feet first and slides feet first into this chasm and disappears. And uh, the next brother's down. Uh, ben goes in behind Joel, and then Jesse, who's the next oldest over me, uh, Jesse and I stick our heads into this chasm, and we see... Um, that it's not like the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe or something. It's indeed just a little earth room that this guy's built beneath his um, his bedroom and it's like a, a safe room and it's like a panic room. And uh, and if the cops come or anything like that, he could, he could go down there and kind of hide out if he was in a jam. And Joel looks around and I see him look around and there's one thing in that room and it's a rotary dial red telephone and that's... Utter fact, like that's Dalton brother gospel. And when I was like 18 having beers with those guys, I'd go, do you guys remember that secret room we found? And, and Joel's like, yeah, man, that's where, and they, that's where they like pack drugs and stuff. But I became a flippin' writer in that moment, I think. You know, like it, it opened my mind and, and, and I think I'm dabbling in the underground because it represents a sense of wonder for me and a sense of my own personal kind of journey and because um, and, that was a profound moment for me. And I, like, I, I wrote the whole book, Boy Swallows Universe, based on that moment, you know, because I always wanted to find out who was on the end of the red telephone because the adults weren't telling us, you know. And, uh, and, and, and it links to your second question about who is that in that last sort, of, last sort of third of that book with those sort of strange people. And I'm, I'm drawing on the lotus eaters from, like, classical sort of storytelling, so, which, which is for me so powerful in the sense of those people in that cave um, and Greta um, is kind of lured into that cave and is so entranced and mesmerised by what's going on in that cave 
Um, and it's, it's just my mum dealing with heroin. Like that's, that's and, and there's times when you just want to sleep. And whilst Greta is so brave and she's so strong and she's doing so well on that quest and she's finding this side of herself through Molly, um, just like I saw my mum find incredible strength inside herself, there were times when she felt like sleeping, you know, and, and I've seen that, you know, and, and it's addiction, you know, and, and it's really powerful. And it's my little, I'm sort of, I get it. I get that Greta wants to sleep and kind of spend her time in that cave. And Molly's just trying to say, please don't, please don't, because it's all about not going home. You know, she needs to go home, but sometimes we don't want to go home, you know, and, and that, that for me is a very powerful kind of thought you know because sometimes home's just too hard to bear you know and and it, and sometimes sleeping is easier and 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 that's what's going on down in that cave you know yeah so thank you for asking that beautiful question well we don't want to go home either but we're going to have to call time thank you all for physical distancing cooperating with us please do the same as you move away from this section as you go towards the book signing over there trent is available to sign your books so please thank a wonderful journalist even better writer trent dalton <laughs> thank you so much you're amazing adelaide thank you so much um guys can i get a massive round of applause for anton Legend. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Yeah.